As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Our Father in heaven, this word is one that um, is necessary for us. And so I pray, God, that you would enable us to, to be attentive, to hear, to listen. Most especially, Father, to believe. So I pray you overcome any resistance we have, not only to hearing, but also to believing. And that, Father, you enable us then to trust you, to know you, to walk with you. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Daniel in chapter 11. I know last week I made the the sort of audacious claim that I would get through chapters 11 and 12. That isn't going to happen. But the good news is that next Sunday is the first week of Advent, and chapter 12 fits rather nicely with a prophetic theme concerning the first Sunday of Advent, and so that will work well. I'm going to read Daniel 11. It is a long chapter. It's longer than maybe any we've read so far. You know, we've been putting our way through all of these chapters. It's a bit tedious, but remember it covers literally hundreds of years of time. The first uh, 34, 35 verses uh, cover probably 350 years of time. And then verse 36 on um, covers a period of time we don't know, perhaps at the very end, if you will. But all of this is indicative of life. And uh, that's the the point of it. I'm going to be reading again out of the New International Version. I generally read out of the English Standard Version, a newer one, but this one uh, I think is a little easier, a little clearer. Uh, I'll annotate maybe a little bit as we go through because because of the detail here, but don't get caught up. Just get caught up in the sense of it. What's happening here as we're reading this passage? What's really going on? Um, so listen, Daniel 11 Beginning with verse 2, hear the word of God. Now then I, the eye here is the angel, this is the vision, remember, to Daniel. So the eye is an angel. Now then I, tell you the truth, three more kings will appear in Persia. Remember Persia conquered the Babylonians where Daniel is in exile presently. Three more kings will appear in Persia and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. So another kingdom. Then a mighty king, Alexander the Great, will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases after he's appeared. His empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. I will not, it will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. And so we know it happened to that empire as it gets split up into four different parts and so forth um, and so on. Uh, We've just covered um, about 375 years of history. Verse 5, until we get to verse 5. The king of the south, Egypt, the king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger and he will rule over his own kingdom with power. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south, everything's in relation to Judah, to Jerusalem here. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south, Egypt, will go to the king of the north, Syria, to make an alliance. So you get what's going on here. But she, this one who's supposed to make this alliance work, but she will not retain her power. And he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be handed over together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. One from her family will, a line will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king's, king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will seize their gods, their metal images and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. It's the south. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. You might be thinking, really, nothing has changed much, right? Verse 11, then the king of the south will march out in rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride. Never a good thing, by the way. Uh, and will slaughter many thousands. 
yet he will not remain triumphant. For the king of the north will muster another army larger than the first, and after several years he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. In those times, many will rise against the king of the south. The violent men among your own people, people of Judah, will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land. Right? We know what that is. The land of Judah, really. Israel. And, and will have the power to destroy it. He will determine... To come with might of his entire with the might of his entire kingdom, and will make an alliance with the king of the south, and he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom. And you want to say, "Come on, that never works." But his plans will not succeed or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them. But a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back upon him. After this. He'll turn back to the fortress of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he'll be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. Verse 21. So, and all of that covers uh, uh, about 150 years. But now we're coming to a section that covers only about 12 years. Verse 21, he was be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure and he will seize it through intrigue. And then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. Again, we're talking about the people of God. A prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he'll act deceitfully, and with only a few people, he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, you can see his tactics, can't you? He will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He'll distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot uh, the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. With a large army, he'll stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and powerful army, but he won't be able to to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall in battle. The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other. That never happens. But to no avail, because an end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be, will be set against the holy covenant. Again, this religious war. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. At the appointed time, he'll invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastland, somebody coming from the west, will oppose him and, and he will lose heart. Then he'll turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant against Jerusalem and Judah. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will uh, set up the abomination that causes desolation with flattery. He will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many Though for a time they will fall by, a, by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they'll receive a little help and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified and made spotless until the time of the end. For it will still come at the appointed time. And now we begin a section that we think we, it doesn't seem to fit everything that's been said so far about these kings. So perhaps... It's modeled after all of that, but comes later. Verse 36. The king will do as he pleases. He'll exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of the gods. So we see this 
is a spiritual thing. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. He'll show no regard for the gods of his fathers over the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his fathers. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He'll attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He'll make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and with a great fleet of ships. He'll invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood, but he'll also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and of all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and the Nubians in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. All right. What I want to do this morning is really to draw attention um, to this part of this passage, which comes in the middle of verse 32 and says, But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. If you have an ESV, it says something to the effect of, will stand firm and take action. Literally, I think it it means that they'll, they'll stand firm resisting him, doing what is necessary, the actions, to resist him. So that's the sense of it. It's a difficult translation. But but those people who know their God will be able to stand firm against all of this, any of this evil, and resist it, and resist any evil ones that come. And then he says, those who are wise will instruct many. For those, for, for, uh, though for a time they'll fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered, when they fall, they'll receive a little help. And then verse 35, some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, And made spotless until the time of the end. For it will come at the appointed time. You see. The way that Daniel and his friends. Were able to live in Babylon. Remember. They were in Babylon. Babylon was a place of exile. They weren't home. They weren't in Judah. They weren't in Jerusalem. They didn't have the temple. They weren't able to worship. They were in exile. They weren't able to to really live as they desired to live. They were living in a culture that was contrary to them. They were living in a culture that desired to pull them out of who they were as followers of God and all of that, similar to the world in which we live, simply. And, And so how did they live? Well, first and foremost, They were ones who knew God. You think about that. They knew God. I suppose if we talked long enough with each other, we could impress each other with people that we know. Uh, We might be able to impress people we know from from the field of politics or from church life or from athletics or from medicine, or from academics. Many of us know impressive people, and we could, we could drop those names and, and, and impress. But, but here you see what this angel is giving this vision to Daniel. He's saying what's really necessary is that you need to know God. You need to know Him. That's simply just about him, not simply just being able to pass a multiple choice test about God and who he is and have all the facts, but to know him. J.I. Packer uh, wrote a book that's the best book, really, other than the Bible to read, a book called Knowing God. Um, speaks of it like this in these personal terms. He said, someone who knows God is someone who has had dealings with God and some with Someone with whom God has personally 
dealt. You see, when the word, Bible uses the word that God has foreknown us, it just simply doesn't refer to his omniscience because he knows everything about everybody and all of that. But when he talks about foreknowing, he's talking about something intimate. You know, the Bible, when it uses the word to know, very often is speaking of something intimate. We can use the word know in the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament Hebrew, as an expression of the intimacy between a man and a woman. When a man and a woman marry, when a man and a woman are intimate, the expression is that they know one another. And so when the Bible speaks of God knowing us, us knowing God, is there's a sense of intimacy here that we know him. See, how is it that, that otherwise that Daniel and his friends could have survived Babylon? That Daniel going there, he, he knew God and he, he knew enough of God and he was close enough to God that he said, no, 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 I can't deviate from, from God at all. So I can't eat the food from the king's table. That would, me, that would be me ingratiating myself. That would be me accepting from the king that I'm part of it. No, no, I can't do that. And, and, and Daniel would know, too, that when, when, when the word came that the king had a, had a dream and, 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 and someone needed to tell the king what the dream was and to interpret it, he knew that he could pray, he and his friends, and he could go to God because he knew that there was a God in heaven who could reveal such mysteries, as he put it. And, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they, were, when they were called to remember to bow to this image, said, no, we can't do that because our God will deliver us. They knew God. Our God will deliver us. But you see, even if he doesn't, we know him so well. That we know he's the one to be worshipped, not this, not this idol, you see. And Nebuchadnezzar was was given visions and 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 dreams that were interpreted by Daniel and experiences, and the, and the reason he was given those, the scripture tells us, so that he would know that God was the Lord Most High, and he's the one who gave kingdoms to men, that he was the sovereign one over all things. You need to know him, you see. And Nebuchadnezzar would later make a profession that he knew, at least that about God, whether he knew him. We realize, of course, at Belshazzar, that king didn't know God. Right. But we know that Daniel did. And so when, when he was told he couldn't pray, he said, well, of course I'll pray. How can I not pray? I know God, thus I trust him. You see, we're to know God. And if we don't know him, we'll never survive. If we don't know him, then this evil will overtake us. We must, not just things about him, but we must know him. We must have had dealings with him and he with us. We must be intimate with him in that sense. We, we must know that he's the God who forgives. And we know that because we've been forgiven and we know we've been forgiven by him, you see. We know that he's the God who gives wisdom because we've received wisdom from him. We know that he's the God who gives strength because we've received strength from him. We know his strength. We know his wisdom. We know his forgiveness. We know that he's with us. We know his presence. We know that in times of difficulty that he's with us. And thus we know this peace that passes understanding, you see. We know that because we know him. He's had dealings with us. We've had dealings with him to really know him. And, and, and of course, we don't know him perfectly. And to the degree that we don't know him perfectly, that's the degree to which we falter. That's the degree that we, we do feel guilt when we needn't because we don't really know as fully as we ought him and his forgiveness. That's when we don't have peace because we don't really know him and his presence with us and his love for us. So, so, so our, our, our peace is measured at best. And, 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 but to know him, you see, to know him. But we can't think about knowing God without the gracious compliment to that. And the gracious compliment to us knowing God is that he knows us. 
You see, to know God really means that he knows us. And again, knowing us, not just because he's omniscient and knows everything about everybody, but he knows us, he loves us, he's, 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 he's called us to be his, he's brought us into his family. Well, we know him, he's accepted us in Jesus, you see. He knows us. Uh, in Galatians, New Testament book, in chapter 4, We read uh, this. Paul writes, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who, by nature, are not gods. In other words, you thought that all of these other gods that you may worship were really God. You know, whether it's your ambition, or whether it's your, 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 your possessions, or whether it's your name, your fame, uh, your honor, uh, whether it was your security, whatever it is that you worshipped, you thought that they were really gods. They would really help you, really protect you, really make you wise, really enable you to live. And so he says, formerly, when you didn't know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, and then he adds this, or rather are known by God. And obviously he's saying, well, I need to have this literary correction just for a minute. Uh, you, you do know God, but the reason you know God is that you're known by him. He's the revealer. He's the one who comes to you. He's the initiator of all of this. He's the one who chooses you. He's the one who comes to you. He's the one who makes himself known to you. He's the one who gives you the heart so that you can really know him. You see, and so he knows, do you think about that? I mean, it's astounding to me if somebody came up to me and say, Bill, do you know Jesus? And I would say yes. But it's more astounding to me if someone would go to Jesus and say, do you know Bill? I mean, that's the astounding part of this. And that's what we must really know. That we're known by him. And, and when I say we're known by him, that is to say when he thinks of us, he doesn't frown. <laughs> he doesn't point the finger at us. He, he, he loves us, you see. And so when he, when he knows us, when he thinks of us, that's a good thing for him. That's a, an enjoyable thing for him. That's hard for me to imagine at times. But it's really true, you see, that when he knows us, it means he loves us. That, that, he, that he, 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 he accepts us in Jesus, that he forgives us, that he takes us to be his, you see. And to know that I'm known by God in any circumstance, in any situation. Daniel, when he's being exiled into this place, Babylon, he's just a kid, remember? He's just a kid. He's just a teenager. And he's ripped up from his home and he's taken to this, to this place and he's thrown into this situation. And there he is, you see. He probably doesn't know the calling that's going to be on his life to be the prophet and all of that. But there he is. He's thrown into that situation. Uh, and he does know God. But wouldn't it be great for him, and I trust that he did, to be able to think, God knows me. I'm not here alone. God knows me. He knows exactly what's happening in this place. Meshach and Shadrach, Abednego, when they, when they were in that circumstance, I know God, he's the one to be worshipped. But even more than that, God knows me. How profound was it when they said that our God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't. You get this sense they had a, a bigger picture of who God is and who they were in him than just that particular deliverance, if you will. So of that very thing, to be known by, to know him and to be known by him, yes. So we take up this, this passage in, in Daniel with that in mind, how is it, the question, how is it that we survive all of this? How is it that Daniel, as he's looking down the road, hundreds of years that will come in this passage, uh, how is it that he, they, his people could overcome? What encouragement is there here that with all of this taking place? You know, if you're an Israelite reading this um, over those years before the coming of Jesus. You're reading it over the years before. 
it, this passage sort of ends, at least by verse 35 and by 164 B.C., starting in 536 B.C. as it begins in verse 2. And you wonder, how is it that we're going to survive? Well, it's, it's by knowing God, but, but look at all that uh, that takes place. So, so what do we have here really? Well, in the first few verses, uh, verses 2 through 4, as I mentioned as I was reading through it, uh, we have just a couple of nations, great nations, Persia and Greece, uh, great King Alexander, you see, uh, make a huge impact in a small amount of time uh, uh, on history. And yet it gets just very little play in this vision. And you think, well, why wouldn't it get more play than that? I mean, Alexander the Great gets 17 Hebrew words here. And you would think, why does this king, beginning in verse 21, uh, get 15 verses? And he gets 17 words. You know, so we see this is pointed. This is pointed history. It's, it's prophetic history. See, when we think about prophecy, and we've said this before, you know this, it's just sort of how to understand the Bible. When we think about prophecy, we often think of foretelling the future. And it is true that biblical prophecy often has a component of a future in it. This certainly does. In fact, this history is so well done that many people think that this must have been written in the second century B.C., how can anybody have written it hundreds of years before that? Because they can follow this history down from Daniel and correspond it to actual events that took place that are very clear. Say, this is that and this is that. If you want to, I'm not going to do this because it would take forever. But if you have an ESV study Bible, for instance. There's a wonderful chart. I don't usually like charts in the Bible, but when, in those things, but it's a wonderful chart. It just lays this out, dates and names and places and all of that. And, and almost everybody agrees, yeah, that's what this is about. So if you want to have some place that there's a prophetic word uh, that uh, people can see, uh, it's, it's, in this, in, it's in this chapter. But, but biblical prophecy isn't simply or even primarily to tell the future. Prophecy is a message. It's telling us something more than who, what, where, when. All right? There's a point to it. And the point to this is to enable us to live, to give us the confidence to live, to give us the understanding to live. We read through the prophetic book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, and people get all this and that about it. But the point of it, according to John as he writes it, is that everyone who reads it will be blessed. From the first readers in the first century on until Jesus comes back. It's to be a blessing. It's to be an encouragement. It's to be a help in order to enable us to really live. And so, so we're looking for that message in all of this. And what we find here, I think, uh, first and foremost, is that this is a very pointed history. As I mentioned as I was reading through it, it's disproportional, meaning that there's a lot of verses given to one king over a 12-year period of time and very little given over hundreds of years. And, and this one king, who is given a lot of airtime, is this one we've already talked about from Daniel chapter 8. No doubt this Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, as he's called, his nickname. Uh, and and he's, he's this king from the north. And, and he's a despicable king, a contemptible person, as we have in verse 21. So, so the point is that when we read through the Bible, especially the Old Testament, we find that history is focused upon redemption. You know, why is it always about, you know, the whole reference point here is Jerusalem and Judah. North and south, east and west are determined by Jerusalem. And you say, well, why? Didn't, didn't all those other cultures and kingdoms contribute to the history of the world? Haven't other cultures and kingdoms contributed to the history of the world? And the answer is, of course, yes, in great ways. Interesting ways, fantastic ways, some evil ways as well. But, but, but the point of the Bible is to walk us through redemption. And so God has chosen this nation, Israel, 
to be the focal point of redemption, at least up until the coming of Jesus. And so, so it, it shouldn't surprise us that the focal point of everything, in the Old Testament especially, is upon Israel. Because that's the nation that God has chosen. That's the nation that God has chosen to reveal himself to, uh, uh, from. And so, uh, we should expect it to be the focal point, and, and certainly it is. And what we see here, of course, is that there is no real hope for peace in the world from the kingdoms of this world. There's no real hope. I, I hope this doesn't surprise you. Um, if you. If you know anything about anything, uh, the history of the world, and read the newspapers today. Uh, what nation is there on the earth today that you think, even our own, can bring peace in the world? And so it's simply playing out all that this is laid out for us through this period of time. Because we, we see it. It's still the same. It's still the same. And, and the reason is because Built within us as human beings are the seeds of our own destruction. You remember I read from Galatians in chapter 4, where Paul said, formerly when you were slaves to these other gods. And you see, as long as we're slaves to these other gods, as long as those who lead us are slaves to these other gods, as long as within every nation there's these other gods that enslave us, there can never be real peace. Uh, these nations, the north and the south, they tried to gain peace by war. If I can conquer you, then, then, we're, then I can bring peace. But, but that peace didn't happen. One nation will conquer another. But yet still within that, that, that new alliance or that new conquered kingdom were these very seeds of pride and selfish ambition. It didn't surprise me at least, and I don't think you either when I read this verse 27, the two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table and lie to each other. Right? What war council among nations has ever existed without lying? Deception and so forth. It just simply happens. Why do these treaties break down? I remember in the 70s when I was teaching economics, uh, and, uh, you know, we had the oil cartels, and everybody was all concerned about all of that, and well, they should have been, and we were, and so forth, and so on. But everyone said, this can't last. And the reason is, is that agreements like that never last. Because everybody knew that one nation, one member of the cartel, would get greedy. And it would begin to break down, you see. And that's what happens to worldly alliances. We know that because the seeds of their destruction are within them. Of selfish ambition, of pride, of fame, of possession, of having more than the other and all of that. It happens. We know that. And so you see, we we can't really put our hope in any nation bringing peace. So I read the passage from the prophet Ezekiel. God says, uh, we've tried it. It hasn't worked. Uh, You've proven even Israel can't bring peace on, on the earth in ancient days. And so he says, I'm coming. I'm going to come and I'm going to be the shepherd of the people. And that's the first advent of Jesus. He's coming to be, we're going to deal with this next week, but, but, but he's coming, you see. That's the, that's the great time of the year of Advent. That's the great time of Christmas. We, we, we celebrate this one who really has come to bring peace. It, it won't come from us. It must come from God and only through him, you see. And still we realize that it isn't going to come until he comes again, really. And the peace has begun, this, 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 the spirit of God on the earth, but, but, but it won't come till Jesus brings it in this, in this way, of course. And not only that, we see that the focal point ultimately is against the people of God. That's where the hostility is aimed. You, know, you remember this vision started in chapter 10. And you remember what was 
shown in chapter 10 was something we knew, but, but, but only because the Bible reveals it. And that is that there's a spiritual battle going on all the time. And, and what we see in the lives that we live is, that, is sort of the outworking of that spiritual battle. God against Satan, good against evil, all of that. And, and so it doesn't surprise us then that the focal point of all of this, if we're wise, is to know that it's the people of God. In these days, it was Israel, Judah, Jerusalem. In our day, it's the church. It's the people of God, the force of evil against this Antiochus who pops up here in verse 21, this contemptible person. We realize we've seen him before, but, but, but you get sort of these hints over and over again that really what's sticking in him is an, is, is an ultimate hatred against the things of God. Verse 22, then an overwhelming army was swept away before him and both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. The high priest in those days was killed by him and others as well. And then we realize uh, too then, then uh, later verse 28, the king of the north will return to his own country within, with great wealth. He has great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. In other words, the wealth won't satisfy him. There's something else here. He's got to get these people to stop worshiping their God. He's got to get these people to be his people or he really won't be happy, you see. And then verse 31, his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and abolish the daily sacrifice. They'll set up the abomination that causes desolation and all of that. We, we've talked about this one, Antiochus, this one who really did come and, and really did stop the sacrifices. And he slaughtered people in Jerusalem. Uh, and, and he really did uh, 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 sacrifice a pig on the altar of God. He really did bring an image of his God into the Holy of Holies and all of that. And so this, he desecrated the temple, destroyed it really for use as the people of God until they retook it as, as you know. But we see all of that. But then this verse 36 takes us. And it takes us to a whole other level. The king will do as he pleases. He'll exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. In other words, this, this one who comes is sort of in the spirit of, of Antiochus. He's, he's in that same spirit, but, 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 but he seems to even be more exaggerated and more against the things of God. That seems to be his, 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 his real point. Uh, verse 37, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt him above them all. He, instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god of war, a god unknown to his fathers, um, and so forth and so on. And then the end result, it all comes against the beautiful land, against, against the people of God, really. And so we see all of that. So how do we survive? How do we live this out? You see, I, I think you get my gist, at least, as I approach these prophetic passages. I'm not trying to give dates and times. I'm not trying to name nations as that's this and this is that particular. Here we can do it because it's after the fact. But to get the sense that throughout history, all the time, is the spirit of this Antichrist as... John the Apostle put it in First John. It's always there. And sometimes we see it more expressly and sometimes less. And sometimes we see it expressly in certain parts of the world and sometimes less in terms of the overt coming against Christians, coming against the church and all of that. But to know that it, it's simply there and it escalates and it gets deeper and more profound and a day will come when it will reach its apex. And that might be this generation. It might not. I have no idea. All right? But we need to be prepared for it. We need to be prepared to, to wait for it. We need to be patient in the midst of it. And so how is it? And, and the way, the, the answer to that question is we must know God. We must know God. We sang a song this morning that, that has its, its bearings from Philippians chapter 3 where Paul says that knowing Christ is knowing everything. He says compared to knowing Christ, everything else is done. Right? 
compared to, I mean, think about that. He said, knowing Christ is everything. Everything else is done. Therefore, we shouldn't long for it. I don't know too many people who write sonnets about longing for manure. Right? He says, well, whatever you have to give up to follow Christ, don't worry about it. That's just poop. Can we say that? That's all that is? And you go, no, it's not. You go, yeah, it is. And so don't long for that. Right? Don't long for that. You know Christ. Don't forget that. You've got that. Don't forget that. That's everything you see. And so he said, you really must know God. That's the very, that's the very point. That's the very point of it. But you see, the, the vulnerability of, of Christians, the vulnerability of Israel, the vulnerability of the church, oddly enough, is flattery. I mean, that's how this Antiochus came. That's how he came with, with intrigue. It said that he, he tricked them. He fooled them. He lied to them. It was, he, he gave them flattery. You know, people come to you and say, I'm so glad you're not like those other Christians, you know. I'm, I'm, glad, that, I'm glad that you're reasonable, you know. And as soon as they say that to me, I think, what don't you know about me? I mean, I'm glad you like me. I always am. And I'm, I'm glad you think I'm nice because they have an open conversation. But, 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 but really... Do you know that I believe that Jesus is Lord? Do you know that I believe that unless we follow, believe in him and follow after him, we're doomed to destruction, to hell, really, for all of eternity? But if you believe in him, then you have everlasting life. You see, that's the essence of it. Do you really know that? So no, no matter how nice you think I am, and, and I hope I'm nice, and, and how much you like me and all of that, do you know that? Do you really know that? Or have I kept that from you? Have I, have I, have I walked this line with you in such a way that you really don't know that? No, I understand in our relationships with people that we don't always play all of our cards and all of that in our settings and that's wise and please understand me but but really this sense of getting caught up in that flattery getting caught up in this they really like me i can really walk both sides of this that after a time we realize we might get on the wrong side of this and that's the danger and that's what we have to be careful about i do always and we as a church and all of that and so it's, it's, it's that flattery and that challenge to our doctrinal truth, that challenge to our moral behavior, that challenge to our spiritual lives. Always. We have to be so careful, so cautious. It isn't the big things that will get us. We're too well taught. We, we know each other too well, all of that. We come together often enough. But, but it won't be the big things. It'll be the little things. And that's what we have to be so careful about. And we'll see back they weren't so little after all. And so we have to be cautious and be careful. To be careful as we redefine, as this culture redefines family and marriage and sexual intimacy and all of that. We have to be careful when the culture comes against us and says you don't really have to worship together weekly. We can do other things. We, you, can, you can go do this and go do that. You don't really need to gather together that much. And you see, all of those things begin to degrade us. That it's better for our kids to be involved in this, but not and even if it takes them out of youth group and takes them out of church and all of those kinds of things. We have to be careful about that, you see. Because little by little, slowly by slowly, you see, that's where it's degraded. And then we find ourselves in trouble. We find ourselves in difficulty. We find ourselves with a crisis. We find ourselves in the midst of suffering. And then we realize, how is it that we're going to, to really live? And we realize we're weak. We're really weak. Because we haven't been. And that's a danger for us, you see. Always. Paul writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, he says, now in the end times, you know, the people aren't going to want to hear this truth. In the end times, people are going to have their ears tickled. They're going to want to be told what they want to be told. And, and don't do that, Timothy. And he said that almost 2,000 years ago. So you can only imagine what life is like in the present day in which we live. And so we have to be wise and cautious. In fact, he says here that the wise ones among you will teach the others. Now notice who the wise ones are. Notice verse 32, with flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise, that is those who know God, will instruct money, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. That doesn't sound smart. (laughs) But it is, you see. It is because the wise ones know what's really true because they know God. The wise ones know what to really hold on to. Don't hold on to your stuff, right? Don't even hold on to your life. 
Those are the wise ones. As we read in Revelation chapter 12, the wise ones are those who know that they overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the work of Christ, by the word of their testimony. I believe that, that's my life. And by not loving their lives unto death, I'll die for that. You can't take that. You can have my life, but you can't have that. Those are the wise ones. Notice how he puts it. Some of the wise will stumble. That is, they'll, they'll die. Some of the ones will stumble. So that they may be refined, purified, made spotless until the time of the end. For it will come at, a, at the appointed time. They know that even in the midst of suffering, that their suffering will work for good. That their suffering has purpose. That their some suffering will purify them, will mature them, will refine them. And what is valuable to them is that purification, that refining, that being perfected for the end. That, that's what's really valuable. Everything else is done. And so they're wise enough to know that. They're wise enough to know that this, this suffering has purpose. This suffering will prepare me. This suffering will mature me. This suffering will really strengthen me. Whatever suffering it is, most especially that which comes from the hand of the evil one. And so, so they know that they're wise to that. When the author of Hebrews writes to that congregation, he says to them that You've had your stuff taken. You've had your, your, your homes plundered because you're a Christian. And he says, and you did that because you knew that you had a better and enduring possession. You had Christ. You had eternal life. And they couldn't take that from you. See, the wise ones are the ones who've counted the cost. They know what Jesus said when he says, if you want to follow me, you must, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. They, they knew that it was the broad road that, 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 that many would take, but it was the narrow road that really lead to life. The broad road would lead to destruction. They realized we're on the narrow road here. This is why all this is happening. And so, so, so I know this is confirmation that I'm really following after Christ, that I really have it, you see. And, and, and they would know the words of Jesus when he says, once you put your hand to the plow, don't turn back. They would know the words of Jesus when he said, don't, don't be afraid of the one who can only kill your body, but be afraid of the one who can, who can destroy your soul and body in hell. He, the, the, the wise ones know all of that. And he says, now in your wisdom, teach. In your wisdom, instruct. Because you see, there's no one else who knows this. There's no one else who believes it. When Paul writes to Timothy and he says, guard the good deposit. He didn't say lock it up. He said, keep it pure because it's been given to you, Timothy. It's been given to the church. It's been given to believers. You're the ones you must instruct everyone. You've got to instruct your children. You've got to instruct your grandchildren. You've got to instruct your spouses. You've got to instruct your brothers and sisters. You've got to instruct your neighbors. You're the ones who have this. And that's not an arrogant thing. You don't deserve to have it. But it's a true thing. God says, you have it. Now you must be the ones who instruct. I mentioned before teaching economics. I don't know why that's come up in my mind. But but, uh, I remember in 1979, I was three uh, rather precocious teaching. Uh, but I remember it was the 50th anniversary, of course, of the crash of 29. And so the big talk amongst economists in those days were, was, if, was if we had another Great Depression, could, our, could we survive it? And I remember then, uh, I like the answer I gave. I understand it better today, like most things I said when I was in my 20s. I remember saying at a conference once, I said, I think our economic system could survive it because it's resilient. I don't know if we could survive it morally. I don't know that we have the stuff as people that they had, the men and women in those days, to live it out. And I wonder, 
if we have the stuff to face every day and perhaps that day. Our hope is that we know God. If we know God better, if he knows us, we will stand firm. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us. That would be true that we would know you. Please, please, please reveal yourself to us in such a way that it's undeniable to us who you are. We see you in all your purity and holiness and clarity and and we know you. Have dealings with us, God, personally. May we deal with you personally. May we be filled with joy when you're honored. May we be grieved when you're dishonored. May you really be our all in all. May we really know that it's in you that we live and move and have our being. That everything that is contrary to knowing you is just simply rubbish. But knowing you is everything. Please be with us as individuals, as as a church, that that would be true of us. And Father, I, I pray for those in our congregation who find life difficult because we know at this moment in that time of suffering and difficulty it's it's really hard to walk it out and so father i pray for the michaels family as as they've lost their house to this fire i pray for michelle and her family and the loss of her dad i pray for those who are struggling with cancer i pray for those who are struggling with other illnesses i pray for those who are struggling with unemployment i pray for those who are struggling in relationships i pray for those who are struggling emotionally i pray, God, for those who are struggling spiritually to know you better. I pray, God, that at this point that, that, that all of us could see that the difficulties we go through, the suffering, is, is for your purpose, that we would know you better, that, that we would grow up, that we would mature, that our faith would be refined, that, that, that we, would, we would deepen in our relationship with you. And so, Father, that, that that would give us strength, knowing you, knowing that, that we'd be able to live on and resist the temptation to fall away. So be with us, I pray. And not only help us stand firm so that we don't fall away, but Father, have us stand firm so that the truth grows in us in such a way that we can really teach others. There can be a light in our community. We can salt in the places that we live. And, and Father, that we could now live in such a way that others would see in us the truth of Jesus and they would learn of him and trust him. This, God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.